us aren't here, they're our, our uh, beloved uh, mother and stepdad of our pastor. And uh, apparently uh, Pat's had some kind of a medical situation where he's at the hospital this morning kind of getting that checked out as his wrists are swollen. And so I know it would mean a lot to them if they knew that we were praying for them. So uh, would you join me in praying for Pat and Barbara? Jenny, did you have something? Okay, well, let's let, let, Let's pray for him. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you so much for, for Pat and Barbara and, and just how much they mean to our church and all that they do, Lord, and my blessed servants. And um, God, we just rejoice and are relieved to know that uh, the doctor has identified the problem and that they're going to be able to treat it and that Pat's going to be well. But Father, we just are all mindful that our, our every day hinges on, on your grace. And um, so, Father, we just continue to pray for Pat and Barbara for his complete recovery and, and that he'll be able to rest comfortably and, and uh, that we'll be able to see him soon. So bless them, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're continuing our study in Galatians. Last week, I uh, looked at the first... 16 verses of Galatians with you, of Galatians 2, and we zeroed in on the importance of accountability. Accountability is being answerable to someone. Uh, the idea that, that there's someone there that is asking us the tough questions. Now, accountability is, is very important. I, I made the point that accountability doesn't guarantee growth. But I can pretty much guarantee that it's hard to grow or hard to change without it. And so it's a very, very important thing in the Christian life. And Paul manifested that in this chapter when he talked about how he went to the, the, the elders in Jerusalem and shared his gospel with them to make sure that it was in keeping with, with their teachings as well. And that he also held Peter accountable when he was betraying the grace of the gospel by hanging out with, with Gentiles when certain leaders weren't there, but then he'd retreat from them when they came. And the hypocrisy of that. And so, accountability brings health. But I'm so grateful to have the opportunity this morning to, to bring a, an additional aspect to that as we look at uh, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Because I think all of us know that accountability can be abused. Just to review last week, I, I shared with you the idea that there's three ideas that, that came to me with, with regard to accountability. Number one, accountability empowers rather than enslaves. It helps us to move forward rather than puts a huge burden on us that makes our lives uh, treacherous and, and burdensome. It directs rather than deters. It, it gets us moving forward rather than taking us down rabbit holes and and paths that are, are not meant to be. And then finally, it affirms rather than antagonizes. People that love us and hold us accountable do it to affirm us, to help us keep going in the right direction, rather than to antagonize us and, and, and tear us down. Now, I, this is all very timely for me, because I don't know if you are aware of the situation, tragic situation in upstate New York. This week, uh, it was reported that two young boy, or boys basically 17 and 19 years of age, were beaten, one to death. The other one is critically injured at a church service. 
And basically this service was a time of accountability for these two young men. Apparently the 19-year-old, who unfortunately didn't survive, they wanted to leave the church. That was a small church, and, and uh, apparently, as I was reading accounts of it, it started out as to be a very loving, caring congregation. Uh, it was a church plant, and, and I think we can relate to that with our own beginnings here. But somehow, some way, it, it started going down a very, very wrong path. And as these young men wanted to go a different way, the church basically had a confessional for them and basically beat them in the hopes that they would repent and turn back. Now that's accountability that is so far out of line with what we're talking about that I, I think we all understand that. But accountability can go very, very wrong very, very quickly. And that's what Paul's talking about this morning. Is that accountability, if, if, if that's the only way that we have of staying on track, is other people kind of cajoling us and, and, and holding us there, and then something's terribly wrong with our faith. Christianity is not a bunch of rules that we have to obey. Christianity is much, much more than that. And that's what Paul is talking about this morning. And something that I hope will be very, very helpful to all of us as we continue to, to, to try to walk with Christ and and be more like him. So let's look at the passage here. The question that I'm asking this morning, or the idea is staying on course. Because that's the balance here. Paul wants to make sure that we're accountable, that we're growing, that we're becoming everything that God wants us to be. But we stay the course. We don't lose sight of what's most important. And so going back up to verses 15 and 16, what is the course? Where are we supposed to be going? What's the direction we're supposed to be headed in? Well, I think he makes it very clear when he says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law. We don't make it to heaven. We don't please God by following a bunch of rules. Now, the rules matter. The rules are important. So I don't want to throw them out with the bathwater, but, but that's not how we get there. That's not what the Christian life is all about. But what? How do we do it? By faith in Jesus Christ. When you take faith and grace out of the accountability equation, you get events like what happened in upstate New York. You get to be cult-like. Because people become drones. They become basically blinded to what it's all about. And they're just terrified of falling out of relationship with whatever group is holding them accountable. That's not how it's supposed to be. I remember so vividly, there was, when I was at, it's now Journey of Faith, the Community Baptist, it was a Sunday night service. And usually the attendance was not, not real great. And, uh, but we, and it was just kind of a, a similar service to Sunday morning pastor preached. There were a few hymns, and uh, I, I remember this was in the 70s, so our pastor got real crazy and actually let worship be led by a guitar. That was just unheard of. No organ, just a guitar. And, and so we were real hip. And, uh, and I remember at this particular service, nothing out, out, out of the usual, but the pastor just felt led to give a, an altar call, and these two guys came up, two young men, weeping, crying, they were a part of a church that existed back in the 70s. Uh, if I mention the name of it, many of you would be familiar with it. And God did a lot of great things through that church. It was basically directed towards street people. 
people that were addicted to drugs and kind of on the outer fringes of society. And these two guys had been rescued by that church and were very grateful for it, but, but the church became very legalistic. And the degree of accountability was so high and, and so intense that these two guys basically had been kicked out. Why? Because they were supposed to go out and witness on the streets five nights a week. And after doing this for months on end, these two guys, as I think young men are wont to do, decided to blow it off one night. And instead of going down to their most pier and witnessing for Jesus, they went to a movie. I think they went to see Star Wars or something like that. You know, some new movie. And the people found out and they kicked them out and said they could never come back. You broke the rules. And these guys were crushed. They were heartbroken. Now, I'm not condoning the, the fact that they said they were going to do something without you know, authorization because there was, there was reasons that they had to be that accountable. And probably because they had a, a, a record and, and maybe on probation of some kind. But their experience was that we can never go back. And they felt lost, and so they were just wandering the streets. They saw our lights on that Sunday night, and they came in, and they learned about God's grace. And they wept, and they couldn't believe it. That's the course. That's the course we need to stay on. So how do I know this is the course? Because some of you might be struggling with, well, if we get lax, if, you know, grace can be abused just as much as accountability. And I say wholeheartedly, amen to that. But what is the course? How do I know that I'm staying the course? Well, in verses 17 through 19, Paul says this. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, I have to be honest with you. As I was reading through that, this is the NIV version. I, was, I, I got a little lost in it. Did any of you get lost reading that? Kind of like it's kind of going in and out and back and forth. And, and uh, so I have this neat software, and it's available to anybody and everybody. And it basically has multiple translations or paraphrases. And, and so I came across one that's very popular. It's called The Message. And I read The Message, and, and I wanted to make sure that it was not losing sight of what the actual meaning of the passage was. But when I looked at it, it really helped to make sense to me. So could we have that uh, version up, the next version? How does this sound? Have some of you noticed that we are, that we are not yet perfect? Not a great surprise, right? Does that, does that make sense to you? How many of you recognize you're not perfect? And the harder you try to be perfect, the more imperfect you become. Amen? Amen. Amen. And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who are going through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The fact that you and I aren't perfect and we mess it up on a daily basis, does that mean that Christ is a partner to that? That that's what he's all about? No. Absolutely not. The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. Now, I love that metaphor. 
if I, if I give up on this, I'm trying to build the same old barn that I tore down a long time ago. Most people I know that tear down a house that want to rebuild the same old house. They want something newer and better and bigger and better, right? And so I, that's not what I'm about. I would be acting as a charlatan. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. Can any of you relate to that? Do you know what it is to try to live the rules and, 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 and you just bash your head against the wall? Because the thing is, it's, it's like wearing a white t-shirt. And you get a black spot on it. What's the only thing you notice on that white t-shirt? The black spot. There's so much white there, but the one thing we see is the black spot. That's our nature. And especially when we have the Holy Spirit in our life, because the Holy Spirit wants to make us aware of those things. He wants to draw us into a, a path of righteousness. But if that's our whole focus, is just obeying the rules, making sure we get no black spots on our thing, then what's the fun of playing? I have to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a law man so that I could be a God's man. I love that. I stopped being a law man so that I could become God's man. That's the course. That's what Paul is going to be talking about here. And the next week when we get into Galatians chapter 3, we're going to look at why are we so obsessed with works? What, what's the appeal of works? Paul talked a lot about that next week, but right now we need to focus on the course. And how do we stay the course? How do we walk that fine line of being accountable, of wanting to please God, but without falling off into legalism and despair and drudgery? How do we do that? And so one of the verses that I learned as a young Christian that I've never forgotten is Galatians 2.20. And I would challenge you, if you don't know this verse, if you haven't committed this to memory, I would challenge you to do that. Because this will serve you well. When you start falling into the drudgery path and into the, the, the legalistic path of just trying to follow rules and, and losing the joy and losing the satisfaction of what it means to be loved by God and walking with God, this verse is so powerful. And I believe that there are, are four things that we're told to do here that will, will be very profitable. How do I stay the course? Well, here's what Galatians 2.20 says. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Any of you familiar with that verse? Any of you memorized that in the past? Because I think if you had to summarize, how do I live the Christian life? What's the Christian life all about? This one verse, I think, summarizes it better than any other verse I could find. And I think there's four things in here that, that can serve us very well. The first, of, the first part of the verse that I see is there's something we need to remember, something that has already happened. The tense is the perfect tense. I have been. It's a completed act. It's not ongoing. It's something that happened. The moment you decided to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, an event took place. You identified with Jesus Christ in his death. 
I have been crucified with Christ. That's a hard thing to get my mind around. The idea that is Jesus, uh, last night, yesterday I, I had the privilege, uh, one of the coaches at, at our school has a Fellowship of Christian Athletes group, and we got tickets to see Woodlawn. It's a new movie that's coming out, and we got to see it, and it's a, it's a great movie. It's about sports, and it's about Birmingham, Alabama, 1973-74, and how Jesus showed up and transformed an entire culture, a whole city, through high school football and kids giving their lives to Christ. But one of the trailers was about another movie coming out called Risen. And it's about one of the Roman soldiers that was at the crucifixion of Christ. And he witnesses this thing, and he's an atheist. He's a, he doesn't believe. And he's been given the task, once they crucified Jesus, to guard the tomb to make sure mo nobody takes the body. Well, guess what happens two days later, three days later? The body's missing. So it's kind of an NCIS episode. He has to go find the body. And where did it go and all this stuff? And he's, you know, frantically looking and, and he can't find it. But there was a, one of the things is the final moments of Jesus. Boom. Crucified. I have been crucified with Jesus. In other words, I fell onto that cross when he did. Even before I was born, even before anyone had a thought of me, God knew me and I was with Christ. It's been said that the greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And I think Paul illumines, uh, elaborates on this concept in Romans chapter 6. And look at what Romans 6, 6 says. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That's, a, that's a, a wonderful concept. I mean, think about that. I am a, when, before I met Christ, I was a slave to sin. I could not do anything else. And it kind of puzzles me how we as Christians hold non-Christians accountable as how somehow they shouldn't be sinful. How can they be anything else? And the sad truth is, is that many non-Christians make Christians look pretty silly because of how upright their lives should be. But the fact is, they can't help from sin. Before you met Christ, you had no power over sin whatsoever. You were dead in your sins and transgressions, and you were a slave to sin. And every moment of every day was about you and serving yourself and doing all those different things. But when you've met Christ, I know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Uh... Remember Flip Wilson? I'm dating myself, aren't I? <laughs> kind of octogenarian. But Flip Wilson was this black comic, and, and he, I uh, forget the character's name, but it was, this, it was a female impersonation. Geraldine. Geraldine, that's right. It was the devil. It was the devil made me do it. And that became my mantra. Hey, it wasn't me. It was the devil. It was the devil that made me do it. And, and I've heard Christians use that a lot. And, but according to this verse, I can't use that anymore. The devil can't make me do anything. I'm not under his power. I'm not his slave. I'm not the slave of sin. I've been crucified with Christ. The woman that led me to Jesus told me that 
I was going to be tested. I was going to be attacked. And one of the greatest lessons she gave me before she kind of let me go on my way was you got to talk out loud to the devil. Because I don't think he knows our hearts and our minds like Jesus does, the Holy Spirit does. And she said, you've got to speak scripture to him. Well, here's one of those scriptures that we need to speak out loud. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead to sin. I'm just a dead body. You can't tempt a dead body. It's gone. And that's how it is with us. We are no longer under that penalty. Now, do we still sin? Yeah. Because we still have that nature. But we have been crucified with Christ. It's done. We need to remember that every single day. You know, how many of you go to bed pretty righteous and then wake up pretty fleshly? <laughs> you ever notice that? Like you go to bed, you had a great day, you, you know, you love your wife, you love your kids, you love your job, and you wake up and you're up, you're cranky and you're upset and uptight. What happened? I think our old nature just kind of creeps back in. And that's why it's good to remember, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Now the next thing we need to do, according to this verse, is we need to realize something. Realization. And this is a realization that if you're worth your salt, if you're really living the life and, and, and trying to be what God wants you to be, you're going to have to realize it every single day. Because somehow we forget. But the realization is that it's no longer, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Think about that. You know, I, <coughs> my grandson, Phoenix, uh, one of our favorite things to do is I'll put him on my knee, like he's a, uh, what do they call it, mannequin, puppet, thing, ventriloquist deal. So I'll tell him jokes that mean absolutely nothing. I say, so why did the turkey talk to the chicken? Because he was a robot. <laughs> well, that's not funny, right? <laughs> but there's this little spot on Phoenix's side where if I tickle him just right, he laughs hysterically. And he loves that. He loves it. He says, tell me another joke, tell me another joke. And I can tell him whatever I want. And he just laughs and laughs and laughs. And so it's like he's under my control. He's kind of that puppet. Well, how many of you want to see yourselves as a puppet? Does that... I, I don't really kind of like that. But in essence, that's what this verse is saying. Who's living your life? Are you living it? How are you doing? How's that working for you? Or are you allowing God to live it through you? Now, that's a sombering realization. That's stunning. I'm not doing this. I need to realize that I'm not longer living, but it's Christ that lives in me. Let's look at uh, Romans again for some commentary. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He didn't just leave us dead. When Jesus was crucified, did Jesus stay dead? No, God raised him from the dead. He's alive. We also are alive since Christ raised him from the dead. He cannot die again. 
But the life he lives, he lives for God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, so now death has already occurred. Now what happens? Am I going to live again, or am I going to let God live through me? And that's, that's the realization. Okay, Jesus, take over. Live through me. Jesus manifested that so well for us. Not my will, but your will be done. Does that always leave us the, lead us the easiest way? The simplest way? But does it always lead us the best way? It sure does. And so he says, realize that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's a great realization. And I think on that, that, those two little phrases, I don't live, but Christ lives in me, boom. That's the Christian life. How many of you would rather live by rules? Just tell me what to do. That's one of the scenes in Woodlawn. This young football player, African-American football player. Should I go to Alabama, this segregated school, and make a difference? Should I go here? Should I go there? And his dad, this wonderful, godly man, says, son, I'm proud of you, and stuff like that. And he looks at his dad, and he pleads with him, he says, dad, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And his father says, I can't tell you what to do, son, but I'm sure you'll do the right thing. God will tell you what to do. You follow God. You walk with God. He won't lead you wrong. And I think sometimes that's what faith is, isn't it? Faith is, it'd be nice if it was just all laid out for us, but that's, it's not always that easy. Third thing, step three, release, release. We need to remember, we need to realize, and then our part in the Christian life is not an action as much as it is a release. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. live by faith in the Son of God. I breathe, I, I function, I have my being at the pleasure of Jesus Christ. Now there's a, an image that I have of what this release is like. Uh, again, dating myself, but the movie Dances with Wolves. One of my favorite movies. The, the cinerama of it and the spectacle and the characters, life on the prairies, and Kevin Costner's character. But there's that scene at the beginning of the movie where the war is going on, and it's, it's madness. Basically, you've got people that are, you know, with guns, and what are we fighting for? The war's drawn on and on and on. And finally, Kevin Costner snaps, and he steals the general's horse, and he rides out between the lines... And he rides across the Confederate line, and these guys are just going, this is insane, this is crazy. And they're shooting at him, and it becomes a sport. It becomes a distraction from the madness of the war. And he lines up on one side, and he looks at it, and, and the Yankees are cheering for him because he's kind of their hero. And then the Rebs are going, come on across, come on across. We'll get you this time. And he sits there, and he lets go of the bridle, the reins, he puts his hands back, and he rides that horse all the way across. 
shots are being taken at him. But he's oblivious because he has completely released himself to whatever's going to happen. The old way, he was done with that. That was enough for him. And so he just rides and completely released with his hands back, hair flowing all the way across. And then as a result of that distraction, you know, while the rebels are concerned about him and trying to get him, well, the Union soldiers take advantage of that and they charge and they win a great victory and Kevin Costner's reward is to get to pick any post he wants. So he takes this post out on the Dakota Prairie, and that's where his real adventure begins. But when I think of release, that's what I think of. Are you guys aware of this new technology with cars? They're telling us that pretty soon you won't have to drive your car. I'm excited about that. Just letting your car drive, and you don't do anything. Okay, You just kind of sit in there and... Now, I would be fine with that, except Gary's on the road, my friend here, and, and uh, uh, other people that I know, 16-year-olds and stuff. And so I, I, don't, I don't mean that. Yes, I do. Raise the driver license age, I said. Well, uh, do you guys familiar with the B-1 bomber? Stealth bomber? Stealth fighter? Well, I remember when that came out, uh, the technology was so advanced. And one of the things, the hardest thing they had to do with the pilots in training them is that when the, uh, the bomber was in bombing mode and it's in stealth mode, basically it was completely computer driven. Radar interacted because it was flying so fast and so low to the ground that it was humanly impossible to fly that plane. And so as the plane was flying at these supersonic speeds, to do what it was supposed to do, as they tested pilots on this technology in the simulators, almost every time, like there'd be, they'd see a blip with a mountain range and it's coming up supersonic, they're breaking the sound of speed. They could not help but grab the controls and try to guide the plane. And every time they did that in the simulator, these billion dollar copies <laughs> exploded. The hardest thing those pilots had to learn was to keep their hands off the controls and simply let the controls do what it was intended to do. How many of you agree that's the hardest thing about the Christian life? Is keeping your hands off and letting God do what only God can do. Our job is not to do the Christian life. Our job is to cooperate. That's all it is. All we have to do is cooperate. How many of you are seeing that with your kids? You're not asking that much. All you're asking is for them to cooperate with you. Let's just go halfway on this. No, I don't want to. I had this, I had this wonderful, it was, it was kind of bittersweet. I mean, I have, I have some great sixth graders this year. And on Thursday, I taught them how to, to write an essay. And then Friday, they had to write the essay. And I even left the notes from the essay up on the board you know, so they could see the points and the five paragraphs and all this stuff. And, and I detailed it, and here's what the prompt's going to be. And so on Friday, all they had to do was do what I showed them to do up on the board. And this one little girl, um, and then after we did the, 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 the writing, then we went through it, point by point. I gave their papers back, and I had them highlight things. And did you do this? Did you do that? And highlight it, circle it. And... Um, this one little girl hadn't done anything that I'd put up on the board. 
And so it was nutrition. I was supposed to get my picture taken for the yearbook and stuff. And she came back and she Mr. Windsor, can I talk to you for a minute? Sure, yeah, what's up? And she just broke down. I didn't do anything that you told me to do. And I know I'm going to fail this. Now, I'm not really equipped to deal with sixth grade girls that way. <laughs> the other interesting caveat is that we were doing Young and Art the next period, so I had all these mothers in the classroom. Just, and I'm thinking, what's he going to do with her? You know, and like, so I said, sit down, sit down. And because I'd already told the kids, you know, you're going to be writing a lot of essays, you're going to be doing a lot of things, and this is a starting point. So don't worry about it too much. We're going to learn from this. That's the whole point. How do we learn best? From our mistakes. Amen. And if you can't make a mistake, and so I, I talked to her, and, and but, but, but you said that, and I didn't do it. They go, so why do you think you didn't do that? Well, because I, I, I thought this would be better. How many times has God heard that from us? <laughs> but I thought this would be better. Yeah. Abraham with Sarai. I thought having Hagar, but I thought this would be better. Yeah, how did that work out for you? <laughs> now look at it. You know, you're at war with him all the time. But I thought, yeah. And so just talking this little girl through it and, and the pressure she was putting on herself and that she couldn't fail. And I said, you know what? Because I, 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 I can identify. I'm the same way. And I take things so seriously. And when I mess up, I, I, feel, I feel much like you're feeling. But sometimes we just got to be able to go, oh, can you believe I did that? Can you believe that I didn't cooperate the way I was supposed to? The whole point of the Christian life is to release. Conversation I have quite often with God is driving to work in the morning and Usually, like I say, kind of, I was in the spirit, and then I got out of the spirit, going to work. I'm not always excited about, you know, that. And driving down 190th and getting stuck behind cars that are going too slow, and the things that come into my head, and I'm just going, I can't, I'm an elder at church. I'm going to be preaching this. Can I really? And here's what I've learned. You say, God, what's up with this? I need you. This is between you and me. This isn't all me. I mean, if you're alive and you're real, you've got to be working in me. And I think just the fact that he encouraged me to have that conversation with him says a lot. That I'm not in this alone. It's not all about me, but it's about releasing to someone who can do much more than me. And then lastly, and probably most important, Paul adds these words. Life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And who is this Son of God? Who is this person? Who loved me and gave himself for me. What do we have as Christians? The fourth step is to rejoice. You know, I, I'm, I'm afraid that this little girl on, on Thursday just kind of thought that I would get really angry with her and yell at her and scream at her, and I was so glad that she came back so I had the opportunity not to yell or scream, but to basically get my eyes moist and look her in the eye and say, I'm so proud of you for trying as hard as you could. 
I'm not giving up on you. You can't give up on yourself. We've got a, still 144 days left of school. I can't. <laughs> We've got 144 days left to keep working at this. We're not done yet. By the time she left, she was smiling and she was, you know, grateful. And yeah, I think I can do that. And you're right, boy, I'm going to laugh at this one day. Not today, but, but, but one day I will. Now, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that she left feeling she had a teacher that cared about her, that was supporting for her. Well, how much, because I fail at that all the time. How much more do we have a Savior who loves us and gave himself for us? That's it. That's the bottom line. And every time the devil throws it in your face, you know, like, hey, you blew it again. You blew it again. What's Jesus saying to the Heavenly Father? He's been crucified with me. His job is done. It's on me. I'm carrying him. I'm carrying her. I love this person. I have a relationship with this person. This person is transferred from, from death into life, from darkness into life. I love this person. I care about this person. My name is on that person. I am adopted. I am his family. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Now, I'm going to end early here. I think I said that last week and didn't end as early as I thought I would. But I, am, I have one last thing I want to share with you. Because I think you know, just the timing and... and that's the nice thing about Kenny giving me the verses and, and stuff in advance so that we have time to really meditate and think and gather material. And This came through to me through my email. My, my best friend, his name's Denny, and his wife, Mimi, uh, they helped me start the church I started in, in El Segundo, uh, Oceanside Christian Fellowship. They've been just my dearest friends for the last 30-plus years. And Mimi's mom uh, was in... Uh, Minneapolis, and she'd come and visit us. And she was just this devout Roman Catholic woman. But she loved Jesus with her whole heart. And uh, she died uh, last month. Uh, I think she was 99 years old. And so Mimi went back and uh, celebrated her life. And, um, but she knew she was going to have to talk. And if you know my friend Mimi, she is the last person in the world who wants to talk to anybody. Especially up front and, and things. But she knew that this, her mom wanted this from her. And so this is what she put together. And I'd like to close my, ser my part of the service with this. And then I'll turn things over to Toby. So we can rejoice in this wonderful Savior who loves us and, and cares about us. A few years ago, I had the privilege of talking with my mom about this day. And she asked me to share these things with you. So this is for you, Mom. This is what my mom wanted you here today. To the unbeliever, she would say, believe. Mom believed in the Bible, and the Bible says that all men know there is a God. Mom wanted you to hear the gospel. The gospel is not overcoming addictions or having a better marriage or career. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. All who accept this free gift of his death on the cross will spend eternity with him as mom is now. We do not have to stand before a holy God and be evaluated based on our own thoughts, words, or deeds. God's look, God looks at those who have faith, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. 
Mom has now been in heaven, and her words would echo the Apostle Paul's from the Bible, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Mom believed in a God who is holy and sovereign, a God who ordains whatever comes to pass. We are not victims of the happenings of an ungoverned universe. Mom would say of her own death that it was the time God ordained for her to leave this place. God didn't merely allow her to die, but he called her home, like loving parents calling their children in from play at the time they see fit. God called Mom home, and right now she's praising him for that. Do not ever believe or trust in a God who is less than almighty. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, which the Bible says Mom is one of his. When Mom took her last breath here on earth, already as a believer, she saw Christ in heaven. I couldn't help but picture Mom there with the Lord, praising Him as we sang. But at the same time, I think of those of us she has left behind for a time and how much she will be missed. My prayer for you is that the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for being here today. Amen. Toby, let's rejoice.